0: This is Conspiranormal.
1: Welcome back to Conspiranormal, everybody. It's Adam, and Serfiel is here.
0: I am here and uh, doing better. We'll get to that later, but uh, I am <laughs> okay
1: yes and uh we are glad you're okay but like i said we'll like he said we'll talk about that later um so we are very happy to welcome back someone that we had on the uh beginning uh, towards the middle of of this year and that's uh carl abramson and uh carl welcome back to conspira normal
2: thank you very much very happy to be back
1: Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Um, We enjoyed our conversation that we had with you last time with you and Vanessa and that, that actually uh, we had actually switched over to a new server at that point or a new podcast host around the same time that we did that show. And like so far on that, on that particular podcast host, you guys is the most downloaded show. I wanted you to know that. (laughs) That's (laughs) wonderful. So you have a new book out. You actually have a couple of books out. You have one book out, and I guess kind of another one that is your latest edition of The Fenris Wolf. And we'll talk about that a little later on. But uh, we want to talk about your latest book, which is The Devil's Footprint.
2: Right, right.
1: That you just put out. did it just come out just in the last few days, or has it been out just for a little bit? It's,
2: uh, let's see, about a month now, I think. Okay. We're now beginning of uh, December, and I think it actually came out for Halloween. Yeah, so it's been a little bit more than a month.
1: Okay, well, that's appropriate then, for Halloween. Definitely. Um, and it's a, a very interesting book, and we'll kind of talk a little bit about the plot of it. But uh, what kind of inspired you to write this book? Partic- particular novel
2: well i think that um first of all i like these kinds of books myself meaning you know it's obviously a satire it has an element of humor but at the same time there is this kind of sardonic um you know band-aid ripping you know it kind of presses i hope where it hurts uh, and uh, the theme is that you know, God as we know Him or Her in, in in our culture is tired and sort of can't deal with all the humans and the mess they've created. And there's this deal going on where God basically tells Satan, who's doing fine, that that uh, hey, fix this, and you you can be welcome back up in heaven and be my favorite archangel. And and Satan is just like, whoa, okay, that sounds interesting, a yeah, new challenge. Um, and then this incredible. Um, operation begin begins, which uh, in, in which Satan and his so-called team apocalypse uh, basically cleans up the human mass with overpopulation, with uh, environmental disasters, with corruption. So it's like a really uh, massive uh, operation. And God sort of, you know, he, he cocks his eye, but he doesn't really want to <laughs> You know, interfere because it is essentially a good thing. So we have this power dynamic between humans and um, and then the other humans and and between Satan and God and between God and the archangels who don't like Satan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's like, in a way, it's like an adventure story. But the reason why I wanted to use the uh, context or, or or have this you know, age-old, millennia-old, culturally old uh dynamic between what we call God and Satan is that it's I think very usable when we look and possibly critique our own times. You could argue that it's arcane and you know it played out it its symbolic functions. But at the same time, you have this uh, these two different spirits in a way. One is 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 uh, very conservative and wants to keep things as um as they are. And then there's this slightly more rebellious, uh, innovative, creative character who is more in touch with, I guess, the human spirit. But then you have this, um, you know, the fall from grace, which in humanity's case has been basically one of corruption. It's led to a lot of um, uh, problematic issues. So that big subject I wanted to talk about, but in a slightly in a kind of a humoristic uh, aspect, and the satire uh, is a good language when you want to comment on slightly. Um, you know, hidden or cloaked in a way when you're commenting on things that are going on today. So in that sense, um, it was almost like the, the world got worse <laughs> as I wrote the book, uh, and it was, reality was constantly feeding in, you know, what should I write about today? And, you know, it was things being presented on the news all the time. So in that sense, it's been an interesting, uh, process and, um, I think it's also an adventure story. It does have a a moral in a way, and without spoiling the story, it's basically giving a very clear message. Things have to change by upheaving, by actually uprooting our... um, I don't know, dualistic view of things. It's, yeah. Dualism is way, way, way too easy and it's problematic. And we can see that again, every day in the news where an extreme dualism basically will lead to our extinction because it completely kills off the possibility to communicate and thereby the possibility to, to create new solutions for these quite dire problems that we all share. It's it, The problems are not Unique to any particular group, it's this is a um, you know extin- extinction-based problems we have, and thereby we need to rethink how we act and interact, and that's basically what the the premise of the morals of the book is.
0: And you kind of show how these these outdated religious, philosophical, and political systems um, that rely on dualism are really failing to address uh the, the the current things that are going on that are as existential questions and i guess a lot of that dualism revolves around um man versus nature as well as the classic good and evil
2: yeah that's part of part of the the the, the game that or part of the I don't know inheritance in terms of thinking and morals and stuff like that. It's been coming out, and it's basically a monotheistic attitude. You know, where where man is looked upon as the crown of creation, and and has the, thereby has the right to rule over nature. But you I mean you could put any um, human being uh, alone without any tools, and just put him or her in a forest or in a jungle or at sea or wherever and the anxiety that comes is very strong because the the we we are actually not uh, necessarily like the crown of creation we are just one animal among many other animals and other forces in nature also so the this um, it's it's um, you know uh, it's an illusion but that illusion has been nurtured by Uh, these dualistic forces, let's call them monotheistic, but there are other, you know, political movements that have stemmed also out of these uh, uh, religious environments. Uh, And it's all the same. It's it's, it's this um, uh, not dealing with the other, not dealing with the shadow, as Jung would say, not dealing with that which is not like me. And when you don't do that, there is an inherent dualism which will be, Enhanced and and the, the groove will be deeper, uh, not even over uh, the passing of a generation. And then when you consider, like you know, well, what do we have? We have like two, three thousand years of this thinking that has spread across the globe. Luckily for us, we have other you know parts of the world which are are not monotheist. And and I think that will be probably our saving grace that we can rely on. Um, uh, the multitude of people as actual leverage uh, saying that, you know, Hey, these, you know, polytheistic or pantheistic cultures seem to be doing uh, a lot better, actually. So let's look at what they're doing. Uh, but that is just me being optimistic. <laughs> the, the book the book in itself, I think, carries... Um, it's in between, which is, you know, uh, as a book like that should be, it's it's uh, pessimistic on one side, but it also carries optimism, especially uh, as it has a resolution, which we won't talk about now specifically, but th- that goes completely a grain, uh, against the grain, against this, uh, uh, I would say, masculine, monotheistic, patriarchal. Thing and I don't want to weave in a lot of uh, contemporary issues, sort of you know examining the patriarchal or whatever. This is more down to earth power dynamics, yeah. and these are not contemporary things. They have been going on for a long, long, long time, and it's definitely time to change things for the better. Not necessarily flip the coin, but maybe toss the coin. Like there, there is one uh, scene in the book where Satan actually uh, tosses a coin from uh, up on the uh, Rockefeller Center in in, uh, New York and and has a bit of a philosophical moment about that. But that, I think, basically is like, you know, we have used that there's one side. okay. so there's another side. There's a flip side uh, to the front side. But, you know, in terms of currency, whether we talk about financial currency or or philosophical currency, ways of looking at the world, maybe something like a globe is a more relevant symbol than having the either you know, plus or minus, for or against, black or white, et cetera. It's, it's not really um, any new um, philosophical challenge, but I do think that it seems that we need to address this more and more uh, every, every week that passes, every day that passes, because the, the, um, the uh, detrimental uh, aspects of this could be absolutely disastrous actually.
1: So you would see that we just we need to try to look at our the problems of the world a little bit more complexly than looking at things in like a good or evil or a black and white issue.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, the, the, the thing is that when you look at the, the um, key problems, whether they're en- environmental or, you know, now with the pandemic and stuff like that, yeah. it, is, it is possible to solve a lot of things and solve a lot of things very quickly. Uh, you know, all you need is leverage. All you need is decision-making because the technical expertise and the scientific expertise um, is there. You know, like right. Britain just started uh, doing the vaccine today.
1: Um, right. Yeah, William, William Shakespeare got vaccinated today. What? Uh, in what, in what <laughs> sense? A, a man named William Shakespeare got vaccinated today. Oh,
2: okay. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, but I mean, so it it is completely possible to do these things, you know, but it needs to be swifter processes. You know, if you have this thing where, oh boy, so many coral reefs are um, going extinct, you know, then you just sort of leave all the uh, unimportant stuff that's going on and just focus on that because that's more important. So, and again, I think that um, Satan's attitude in the book Is going from being a fairly, you know, uh, comfortable rebel rouser, provocateur, enjoying life, you know, being kind of an uh, epicurean uh, sheriff, in in a way, you know, punishing the unjust, but in fun ways. Um, And I think that what happens is that Satan along the way realizes that, whoa, these things need need, um, uh, fixing, because if I don't fix it, no one else will, and there will be... No fun anymore because there will be no humans to to play with. So and it's even it's it's that simple. And we are you know in the Western world we can sit with our beautiful technology and you know be comfortable during this pandemic, for instance, and still communicate and work and stuff like that. But it's really uh, remarkable how we can find solace in this. Kind of extreme isolation, for instance, you know because normal circumstances um has to do you know they bring um social interaction. Um, the possibility of not only meeting people but actually touching people and I think that this kind of isolation will have far-reaching implications in the in our culture's psyche over the coming decades because the isolation we can deal with it because we are completely bombarded with entertainment and we can you know watch uh, series and streaming like binge watch until we die basically and and, um, and the But still, you know, humans have uh, certain needs. And for instance, those people who are not involved in a steady relationship and thereby have like uh, sexual uh, channels or sexual relations, uh, it must be absolutely horrendous. I mean, I, I could see other uh, bad things—not just depressions, but other, you know, burn burnouts and and absolutely havoc in the minds of people who cannot interact the way human beings are supposed to interact. And it's not that there's a bad guy with a gun saying you can't do this. It's like a ghost that, or or a blanket of. Uh, the invisible enemy that has been put upon us. And of course, the, the sad thing is that this happens on a regular basis, and we need to be uh, prepared for it mm-hmm. and without, without delving too much into politics or anything. Yeah. But it is kind of interesting, you know, that the previous administration had all of these things in place you know, to be prepared for a pandemic. That that was a, a, a crucial issue. Uh, and then, unfortunately, the present um, administration just said that this is not really important at all. And ergo, there's a big problem in America right now, as also all over the world. But still, it's just a, it's a matter of priority, a matter of focus. And again, uh, maybe also a matter of uh, honesty, uh, cultural honesty, uh, saying that, whoa, this really hurts to think about. It's horrific, but maybe we should think about this and address these issues before they actually happen.
1: Yeah. I think it would might, be, might be too late. I, I, I think that it would be great to be proactive. And and I could definitely see that like, after this is done that, you know, we are going to be proactive. People are, are, going to be proactive so that something like this doesn't happen again. I mean, they talk about um, that this was an every 100 year Uh, pandemic because the last major one was the spanish flu and we kind of had minor flu ones in between this and 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 then but the thing is is that now and a lot of this goes into the reason that we have this virus is really because of the of going into forests and 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 taking these animals out and it jumping to our species. Right. And that's a direct cause of something about what you write in the book about this environmental degradation, what we're doing to what we're doing to the environment. It's a direct, it's a direct cause of that. And I think that now we have to be much more vigilant because of what is, you know, you don't know what is waiting in a rainforest that has stood for centuries.
2: Exactly. You know? or, or in this ice that is melting at the poles, you know, right. you know, talk about because the thing is that, you know, uh, viruses, you know, bacteria, if you, people are interested in aliens, for instance, it's, there's a lot of stuff coming in from space every day. You know, life forms that are not, you know, aliens or or the grays or lo- or look humanoid, whatever. But it's simply a lot of stuff, and who knows, uh, you know, if that allow that a hundred years or a thousand years to to form and merge with other things, and then that could be something very. Um, you know, extremely detrimental to the animals uh, on this planet, including us. But as you say, you know, there's still hidden stuff underground and, and in the jungles and in the ice and, and stuff like that. So I think it's just the the what I wanted to do with the book was basically just what can I do to contribute? Well, I can write about this in a provocative way. People will be uh, revolted against one of the solutions that Satan has, for instance, in the book, uh, having to do with... Um, decimating the uh, overpopulation, but the reason why those things are mentioned is to actively go beyond the comfort zone and have people think, whoa, yeah, yeah, that's that's right. There is something called overpopulation. We should probably not deal with it in the same way as Satan does, Uh, but there's still these things that are so painful to address that people rather don't. And when, when the individuals don't, then the collectives won't either. And there, right. there you have a problem because that you know takes away the power of the leverage of the uh, collective in a way. Um, so yeah, anyway, to, to, to sort of um, uh, connect it with the book again, it's, it was incredibly fun to write it because of the fact that it felt so incredibly you know current affairs mm-hmm. um but at the same time also make sure to weave in this uh the humor and also the philosophical aspects of it because it's not the world isn't strictly causal it's not only about you know do this and fix this and everything will be fine there needs to be ideals involved also reasons and motivations for uh, for doing things not not just uh Uh, mere survival we're not at that point yet but we could be (laughs) soon
0: well the thing i found most interesting was that coming from someone like you who i know uh, appreciates often extreme forms of individualism um, how you're addressing these collective problems and individualism um, taken to a suicidal suicidal extreme is not rational and not profitable for the individual, obviously. And we get individualism convoluted with just a uh, pure self-interest. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, uh, the modern way of looking at things is that most people are self-interested and selfish anyway, but most of them are not actually strong individuals themselves. Um, and that there's this lack of will in the in- entrenched elite, um, I could see this as being really provocative also, because like I know in the conspiratorial right right now, they're kind of on fire with these, uh, with, uh, Davos this year, and the world economic forum, and this idea of a great reset. And they're already saying they're, Oh, they're trying to, um, you know, design this new world when really the world economic forum is probably just giving platitudes because they understand that things are going to have to change and they yeah. still want to make money. Um, but, uh, i really I really like how you how you balance that and pick apart individualism from simply this uh consumer um, concept that we have.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that it's also, again, you know, we are so privileged in our part of the world and we can talk about these things and talk about, you know, individualism and Crowley and Thelema and, you know, all these things. But it's basically, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a luxury. You know, most people yeah. can't even speculate about these things because maybe they simply have to survive or they're so... They have to fend for themselves or it's just dire or, you know, it's not an easy life um, in most parts of the world, actually. So what I think I want to say also is that it's great to be, you know, it's great to be me, great to be a Western, well-educated individualist. And I also feel happy about promoting individualism and stuff like that. But maybe it also has to do with age in the sense that you see a slightly bigger picture uh, and especially in, in the problematic times like ours, and you can say that, well, yeah, you know, it's great to be an individual, but again, you know, how individual can I be when I'm alone, especially when growing older and you need other, you know, people to take care of you. And that's the thing that's been probably the most uh, sad thing about the pandemic, at least here in Sweden, is that it's mostly taking, uh, taking its toll among the really old people uh, in the elderly homes. You know, Once the virus got in there, it was just like a bowling alley. Um, and the problem is that then you realize that, well, many of these old people, they're also individualists, but they cannot really be individualists because they have no... Uh, support system, so no matter how youthfully you know uh, virile and strong you feel, there will be a day when you are the same on the inside, meaning you carry the same philosophy and the same ideals. but the outer surroundings change, so does that invalidate the philosophy? No, I don't think so. But I think it, you have to open your mind and, and your vision slightly more to realize that my individualism is made possible by my allowing other people to serve me, but there's a contract in this. I also yeah. need to serve something back because otherwise you're just a, a rogue or a bully or, or, or a thief even. Uh, so in that sense, it's, it's not really... Um, super advanced philosophy, it's just basically an kind of an economical uh, attitude, uh, meaning if I want to be in control of my time, I need to pay other people to uh, supply me with certain things so that I can focus on doing what I want to do with my time. Um, so basically, I think it's kind of the, the, the main... Um, insight is basically shamanic in a way or it's uh, pantheistic or maybe even psychedelic in the sense that we are all connected you know there are no isolated units who can you know like Zarathustra be on the mountain and and look down and you know laugh and madness and (laughs) whatever you know it it doesn't work like that In reality, we can achieve a lot of things. And if we want to be, you know, solitaires or work alone, we still have to be involved in the social contract with other people. We have to eat. And, you know, if you you want to be a diehard and be in the jungle and hunt your own food and stuff like that, then you will have no time. Uh, or energy to think about philosophical concepts, then right. getting the food will be the only thing that, that matters. So it is, uh, I was going to say it's tricky. It's not really tricky. It's kind of uh, obvious, actually. But um, our concept, which is like philosophical, magical, salemic, satanic in a way, uh, of individualism, uh, still carries a lot of needs. And those needs have to do with social interaction.
1: Well, I think there's just like, you know, even like Crowley and, you know, LaVey even, I mean, there was still this, this, I mean, I, I'm not as maybe familiar with the philosophy as you two guys are, but it's like you could do what you wanted to do, but you didn't want to hurt people. You you could not hurt another person, another individual. And so, you know, in that sense, it recognizes exactly what you were just saying, Carl, that like, even though you are an individual you know, you still have to be part of society. Exactly. And
2: you, you, can, you can be that in secret. I mean, many people are happy with that. Just, you know, have their own armchair uh, philosophy or magic thing going, and that's fine. Or you could take on the role of being a, a spokesperson for, you know, for someone or something. Uh, but, you know, it's still, that's because the culture or society grants you that, you know you can go against a, a totalitarian society but probably not for long as a as a um, as an individual you know something is like uh, this this japanese saying you know where the 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 nail that sticks out will be hammered down yeah. and that's the same thing you know that's happened for with so many individualists and that's why i think you know um uh, that the best way to promote individualism is simply by inspiring people to show that it's possible, but you don't need to go into a clinch with some kind of uh, illusion of an opponent. You know, Again, that's a dualistic way of thinking, saying that I have to be against these people to feel that I'm for myself, but it's a complete illusion. Um, you know, individualism is, is basically about what's what makes you motivated, what makes me motivated to feel the, the maximum amount of happiness as possible. And those things come in many different packages depending on who you are. But I would say that only a fraction, a thousandth of a thousand, actually find happiness and joy in being an opponent um, to that level where they get hammered down. And and that also should tell that those people are probably more masochistic than what they would prefer to be seen as some kind of you know sadistic or super strong individuals but you know if you if you you know uh, provoke something that you inherently know is much stronger than you then maybe the best way to change it is not to go uh, head on in a clinch
0: well and if if these um, collective problems threaten your very survival then um, resisting that and uh you know main, maintaining this rugged individualism is is irrational and that is that is uh, not very satanic
2: no absolutely and also you could always bring up this example of of uh people in horrible wars who have witnessed horrible things and and people said that you know why didn't you do this and why didn't you show some kind of you know uh, civil courage or things like that but that's very again very easy to criticize other people from our comfortable position because in that moment maybe the only thing that mattered was that that person wanted to survive you know and, and could have left the horrible scene or looked the other way whatever we can't judge from our you know um, ivory towers it's it's kind of um, impossible <laughs> in a way you know you have to look at things um at those circumstances that were around at the time and again our privileged position is not the rule it's an extreme exception to what's going on and and um I, for one, am very happy to be me in, in this time and, and to have these opportunities and, you know, to talk to you on the podcast and to publish the books and stuff. But I'm also aware of that had I been born, you know, in a different country, this would not have been possible. So I think that's one of the reasons why I work so hard with these things is that I want to get all this stuff out there simply because I can. And I hope that it will be able to inspire people to, to again, deal with their own stuff
0: it is it is very provocative um i am i'm interested in seeing uh, the reception i'm i'm interested in um, seeing people who uh, may may not really get it uh, get a hold of it or get wind of it and uh, you know I, I could see how they would they would use it as proof that uh, the devil's actual plan is being put into place
2: yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah just... but maybe I'm a, I'm a, maybe, maybe I'm a double agent because I think that what I <laughs> since I usually only preach to the already converted, meaning on the dark side, uh, the <laughs> some some of those have been critical of what, hey, what, what are you bringing in, God and stuff like that? What's going on? You know, as if this was some kind of realistic you know, boxing game. It's, it's just a little satire. But even that is provocative for the other side. You know, you could argue that, well, these, you know, the Christians will go bananas or the evangelists or whatever when they find that, you know, devil is the protagonist and helps save the earth and God looks the other way. But it's equally provocative for the atheists or for the 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 dark side people, the fact that God has actual, an actual part in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how strongly... Um, divided uh, how strong this dualistic way of thinking is you know you can only root for your own team even if you know both teams are actually playing the same game it's weird
1: to kind of go back to your discussion about individualism and duality and how we like to put ourselves into camps Mm -hmm. i mean over here I, i don't know what it's like in sweden or in europe as a whole but over here this seems to be the way that we're living now is everybody's got their own little political tribe and then you've got things over here like the qanon movement which has become this vast movement that really sees everything in this sense of black and white as good versus evil and it's starting to get to the point that it's starting to get really really scary so I I really appreciate your viewpoint on the whole duality of, of that, that we need to start looking at things in other ways, in other and start looking at things, stop looking at things melodramatically, and start looking at things in more comp in, in a more complicated way, because the what we're seeing now here in the United States is is just the opposite of that.
2: Yeah. Yeah no it's 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 kind of hard to, to comprehend again uh, you know we have uh, you know we follow the news and and things like that and it's so incomprehensible uh, i mean it's one thing with this age old Again, the super dualism between, you know, Democrats and Republicans, that's one thing. And that can go horribly wrong, too. Uh, But with these other movements that are outside of that arena, because they don't even respect the arena, uh, it's a kind of, uh, uh, I don't know how I should define it, but it seems to be like a vent or a vault that that has been like entire culture has been such a pressure cooker, maybe mm-hmm. encouraged, maybe not. Uh, but the pressure has been so strong that the only way people can come up to the surface and breathe in a way is by uh, swimming either to this in this direction or in that direction. It's like no middle ground. Um, there is like only channels being leading people up to the surface, but at the same time there is. Um, this, as you say, is a kind of an ultra division in which lies are consciously disseminated as truths. So that's one thing. But the horrible thing to realize um, is that people aren't even questioning it. So Mm -hmm. what's the reason for that? I think it has to do with, allegiance. People are so afraid of what's going on. There's so much anxiety going on uh, culturally and, you know, maybe these global issues too. And the fact that they cannot get their own individual insight into what's really going on or how to act. So there you have Classically, the religions and America is basically a Christian country. So you have uh, Christianity, specifically the evangelicals, uh, shouting out with their megaphones, and uh, this is what needs to happen. And they've sided with uh, the Republicans, uh, or should we say the, the conservative side of things. But these other ones that you mentioned, uh, they are uh, attracting people who can't even find solace in these um, very accessible environments. It's easy. Most people, you know, have connection to some kind of church or movement, or maybe they find it in, in the, even in entertainment or escapism. Uh, they they just want to get their solace in a way, their dose of feeling okay, uh, and not feel anxious. But these other people are in a way encouraging the anxiety and shouting out, "Join this." And, and cheer this, and you will feel much better. And there you have a complete fascist scenario. That's basically what happened in Germany and in many other countries, where uh, when people no longer question the truth that they know is the truth, and instead just simply arbitrarily replace it with a lie. Uh, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, terrifying. Because again, uh, if we talk about the power of leverage... Um, a few well-educated people can argue this and that. But in a demo- democracy, if, if uh, sort of the other side wins, how can you argue? Because those people are not willing to argue. They will do their damnedest to change things. And that's basically what's been happening during these past four years, too. As much change as possible to uh, not have a free discussion, to not have a critical thinking, but simply to... Integrate lies as if they were truths, and that it's a very, very interesting situation, and of course, very problematic for for uh, for your country.
0: We we recently spoke to Eric Davis, and he mm-hmm. talks a lot about. Uh, he has been talking a lot about the uh, the the global pandemic, and the embrace of irrationality that you're talking about as an almost. Um, mm-hmm. A cult-like or shamanistic journey that a lot of people are getting themselves involved in, who do not have a background in these things and don't really understand what's going on. Do you have any insight into that?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think I think I touched upon it a little bit, and I certainly understand what what Eric is saying. It is the dealing of trauma without the proper tools. Uh, And in whether you're on like you go on a psychedelic trip or a shamanic journey, or if you have other kinds of spiritual things, even, even the established ones like, you know, Christianity and Islam, that, that is a language. It gives people tool to tools to deal with things that are traumatic. I mean, culturally we have, uh, you know, the church helps us when when we're born and we get married, have kids and when we die, these problematic big, changes and shifts and not all of them are traumatic of course but when you lose a grip of your own individual understanding of how the world works then that's a, a very very uh, threatening trauma, and how do you get out of it? Well, you could you know could join something. You could join you know the Masons, or you could join yoga, or other sort of extra environments that are um, in the vicinity in our specific culture. But at the same time, uh, when you come to the point when there's there's not just a set of ideals or some kind of, you know, morals, like with this group, like the masons or or within yoga, etc. when there's nothing else but these shouting, you know, megaphones of of hatred, then um, most people get drawn into that because in a way they want to find themselves and find community and solace, but at the same time they also want to lose themselves. So Mm -hmm. I can see the appeal of it. But, That as a journey to finding yourself will never happen because they go down, you know, an underworld journey uh, in which there are no uh, shamans. There are no people (laughs) to help you find that thing. It's just a a feedback loop of hatred. And, you know, and they come up with these ridiculous conspiracies, uh, which, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago would have been impossible and again, I'm not out to analyze the, the American political landscape, but the thing is that we are seeing a crisis of people not being able to deal with the trauma. And what is the trauma? Well, it's on a global scale. Uh, it's on national scale, but of, mostly it's on an individual scale. People have, you know, uh, they're poor. They're not so well-educated. There is, uh, They can feel the economic crises. Then you have a pandemic on top. of so it. all of these like invisible enemies because if you're at war you can say that well it's the it's these people we have to go and and fight the war uh but in this case it's all invisible so the people who write the script and who who also deal with the narration in their megaphones they can you know uh, explete anything and the sad thing is that many many people buy it uh i mean even literally uh and it's, I, I can't see a way out of that. Uh, you know, you can talk about healing the divide or whatever the political language is, uh, but I think it needs to um, go into a repair mode. That's not simply a balancing, but again, like I'm touching upon in, in uh, The Devil's Footprint also, there needs to be a completely new uh, mode And when you only have two basic political parties, uh, that is going to be very, very uh, problematic because that reflects the cultural standpoint in which you have people who are one way and the other people are simply the other and vice versa. It's, it's, It's a very, very difficult situation. And of course, the dis- disenfranchised will feel even more disenfranchised because they can't see that culture as such is making any headway. Actually, it's it's getting worse. Actually,
0: just dualism leads to more dualism, which I believe a character in your in your book says.
4: 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: I do want to ask you, Carl, about uh the character of the devil and how you characterize him. I guess you never really call him the devil, you do call him Satan or Lucifer in the yeah. book. Yeah. But um the way you characterize him, he's kind of a he's kind of like a he's kind of a trickster in a way. So you really kind of ho- ho- hone in on kind of like that trickster archetype. Uh, what kind of did you draw on for the character of his character in that? Oh,
2: I, I think that um, uh, there's a lot. Uh, it's like a closet of uh, what I like. <laughs> that, that's, that's, uh, but I always liked the, the devil figure that is gleeful. Uh, that certainly, you know, helps out these, you know, egotistical, egotistical um uh, almost, you know, brutish, rapacious, but he knows that they are so unenlightened and stupid that... They will see me later on, meaning that he he has this kind of sense of justice that even if he's on, you know, so, so-called the other side, meaning the other side from the omnipotent God, you know, who is the, the you know, the creator of everything that's good. And then you have Satan has, has taken on the role in a way in this dualism. But at the same time, he has a more refined sense of justice Than God has. So that kind of humor where Satan is almost like playing with people using pawns because they are so greedy, they are so insular, so um, basically stupid. And that's what what, uh, God talks about this disease being humanitis. It's when you're so tired of this constant lack of a greater view or perspective when you're only completely self serving the worst possible way that's what satan likes to you know point his finger at and um uh, aid and abet but always with gleeful knowledge that um, this will not last for long and the people who are actually uh, satan realize he they are good. We'll leave them alone. In this book, for instance, we have indigenous cultures. We have farmers who are only interested in farming. Uh, down-to-earth people, um, Satan is like a, the true benefactor of, of the good folks, in a way. Uh, in terms of uh, inspiration um uh, I have, uh, for instance, one film called uh, Angel on My Shoulder. Uh, which is the devil coming up to uh, earth <laughs> it's funny uh and that character is exactly satirical the commentator on the folly of man mark twain's um letters from the earth where where uh Satan oh, yeah. Sorts letters yeah that's a good one Uh that's, um, I read that a time ago and I decided not to read it again when I was uh, writing the book. Uh, I felt that that book did affect me in a, in a great way, but quite a long while ago. So I'm turning to that book now because I love Mark Twain. Um, and um, basically, you know, um, I, uh, another film, um, what's it called? The Devil's At, you know, where Al Pacino is... Uh, mm-hmm. This this uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. all powerful exactly this kind of thing, aiding and abetting a lot of uh, on the surface, but at the same time completely weaving in uh, a glee seeing these mighty people fall because of their stupidity and and sort of uh, unjustified in a way, um, and th- there are many others also, but basically the the, the devil in this uh, narrative. Is uh, someone who sort of voluntarily accepts this challenge, uh, realizing as he does along the way, God will absolutely two time and trick him out of the, the promised chariot in heaven, uh, but still doing this immense task balancing the earth and the people because of the fact that he also cares. Satan cares about what's going on because if he, if everything in his kingdom, you know, is to hell in the wrong way, then there's no real hell to, to deal with and have fun with. It's, it's a kind of a, a loose loose situation that becomes a win-win situation.
1: And you kind, of, you kind of paint hell as kind of like this kind of like pleasant place. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think
2: that it's, uh, I can't remember the exact description, but it is like the way I describe it or the way Satan describes it in the book. It's like, it's more like a very uh, boring and neutral kind of designer hotel where most people just stay in their room, do whatever it is that makes them tick. So there's like no real punishment. There's punishment there for people who are bad. Uh, but Satan also has this capacity to ask off people. That means literally turning them off. So they don't need to be punished. They could just be, you know, terminated. Whereas hell seems to be more like a kind of a fun playground for people who are completely aware of the fact that they did, things wrong when in life on earth, at the same time, they are good people. Uh, They have not done a malicious, consciously, like the evil things. They are just, you know, Epicurean intelligent people who prefer the company of other Epicureans and intelligent people rather than having, you know, sanctimonious uh, enforced spiritual in this ethereal sphere that, as we find in the book, seems seems completely uh filled up with conspiracies and and the babbing and um it's not an it's not a paradise at all hell seems to be the truth in this book
1: yeah i like how you incorporate these historical figures like uh machiavelli and ambrose Bierce and Marlena Dietrich is in there somewhere and it's all, it's all, uh, it's all pretty interesting. And and another thing too, uh, you, you title it the devil's footprint. And I understand that that actually, and I had to look this up when I read the introduction to the novel, that that actually is a real thing.
2: Yeah, that was the starting point of the entire thing. It's like uh, I was with uh, Vanessa in, in Germany, in Munich, and I think in the spring of two thousand eighteen, and we were at this uh, sightseeing, strolling around this beautiful town, and and we came to this uh, church, and in there is the footprint that's tiled, you know, it's a footprint, and tiled. I don't know how that actually came about, but you know, of course, I tried my foot. That's what everybody does. Mine fit actually perfectly but that's not important Uh, (laughs) the starting point was that that, uh, (laughs) the story is that uh, this mythic quality of even uh, you know just print in a tile on the floor in this church people they stand in line to match their foot in this thing and you know, devout, pious will do it too, and kids and old people. So that in itself is culturally and mythically interesting. Would you want to do that? Uh, but at the same time, I was fascinated by the thing that at one point in time and space, someone decided not only to put a footprint there, but that that was going to be Devil's footprint. And how the hell is that possible? And that got me started at the beginning of the book, which takes place in the 16th century, uh, where the devil involved as a banker, as a you know uh, uh, facilitator for this church to be built, again helping out God in a way with practical things on earth, you know, wanting his um, something in return. Um, so that that's how that began. So it's a real thing. It's a real mythic thing, or an interesting sort of old tourist attraction in in Munich. But then, of course, that that uh, spawned a lot of your thoughts and, you know, current affairs things. And I also consciously wanted to weave in these people that you mentioned, for instance, and there are others too. Also, um, the fact, I want to show the mythology, uh, not specifically only of the devil, but mythology as such as being created by human beings. So if I weave in these, things, these people and claim that, you know, you know, Machiavelli isn't as Satan as people uh, seem to believe. Actually, we can we can uh, disclose to a pretty brutal ending in in the Devil's Footprint. Uh, but still, it makes the historical people come alive in a way. It gives them uh, uh, I shine a different light on many of these people. Uh, in a way, it's casual from my point of view. I wanted to weave in real people either because i think that they uh deserve it like in the case with machiavelli satan's favorite mistress i guess in in, um, in the story is um, uh, marlene dietrich that you mentioned so i love her too <laughs> i would love so in that sense it, it's uh it's fun to write the reason i wanted to weave in this these historical figures simply because uh, It's not something that is uh, uh, untouched. You know, history is being created uh, every day, uh, not only with reporting and not only by uh, you know uh, academic history writers. It's being created every day, every minute, every hour, uh, every week. Fiction is an incredibly poor thing, and I wanted to, in a way, to pay homage to these people that I've mentioned by name in the book. It could be negative homage, uh, or it could be positive homage. I'm no fan of Machiavelli, for instance, and he comes to a brutal end in the book. I do love Marlene Dietrich, so she has a prominent uh,
1: benevolent role in in the storyline. Not a big fan of the the writer of The Prince, huh? Yeah,
2: Um, (laughs) no, I I think that that he he was good in a way, but I don't like like the public image of how people uh, use him as a symbol of something that uh, may not have been the case at all. He wrote certain things. Then there were a lot of people along the centuries who wrote things about him. That's the nature of the game. You know, when when you're a public figure, uh, you will be uh, touted. You will be forever criticized. Uh, but it goes from you being you, alive, creative, to something completely different. You know, uh, when you've written something, you will become... Either, well, sadly, some people get forgotten, uh, completely forgotten, but most people, they live on through their works, whether it's, you know, paintings or movies or books, basically fictional uh, accounts. And I think uh, Machiavelli was a kind of an amateur. Uh, He was, uh, uh, what do you call, a manipulator. But in this manipulation, it's also a strong sense of immorality and like it or not say the satan of my book is not immoral he's actually a very moral character and he he dislikes this uh servility that people like machiavelli uh actually stands for you know because he he would go this prince or this king uh, if it um uh, you know benefited him and that kind of uh, immorality uh the Satan of my book, I appreciate because also Machiavelli tries to, uh, double cross him.
1: So I want to talk, let's talk a little bit about the Fenris Wolf, um, that you, that you publish now. Um, how did this start with this? Uh, I, I guess it's, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's a magazine, but I mean, it's really, it's, it's a full scale book. I really, I guess, how did you start, um, publishing this?
2: Yeah, where is Wolf? Uh, became, um, an example of the fact that when uh, I was in my teens, I became addicted to uh, making print printed matter. You know, writing and taking pictures, having my own scenes. They were mostly about you know music and movies and comics and stuff like that. I think I was around uh, fifteen to make my my fan uh, and then as I grew slightly old, my interests changed from you know garage rock and weird music and movies to the more uh, magical things but i still wanted to have my fanzine and this was way back in 88 1989 so the fennish wolf from the beginning was my occult fanzine it was it looked like a fanzine like a magazine but then I realized well, I know so many great people in, in basically through the Temple of Psychic Youth and other groups that I was involved with. Uh, and they were all super willing to provide me with ACE materials. Fantastic situation. So I just rolled with it. And up until 93, uh, there were in total three issues, uh, one magazine and the books. So that was number three. Then, you know, life happened and I got involved with unpublished other occult books, but the Fenris Wolf for some reason, simply had to go into to, um, hibernation up until 2011. And then, I guess, every other year or so since then, I've published um, a new issue, and they're all big books. The number 10 is the one I think you saw is 422 pages. So it's it's a massive thing, and it's that's the way it is, because this kind of eclectic mix of psychedelic or calm. Uh, weaving in cultural and occultural uh, topics and issues. It's a very popular mix. And I'm, of course, very, very happy about that. So, And I'm also doing um, uh, the readers uh, a service by republishing all the old issues, three more to go. uh, Because when they came out, they became... You know, they sold out, but then they started fetching these insane prices on on eBay. But I would rather have them out in fairly inexpensive editions, so that everybody who to uh, read about these cool things uh, can do so. You know, and, and order whatever they are they are on on um, on this planet. So that's my thing: working on new Fenris wolves, but also the old ones, making sure that they're all available and. Of January or so, they will all be available again. Right now, the, the, as I said, it's like three issues in these new uh, editions.
0: About uh, this um, number 10 that you recently put out, what, uh, is there any kind of different theme to this one, or is there, there an emphasis on this, on this edition?
2: Uh, no, not really, because the, the editorial policy that I have is to be uh, eclectic. Not okay. for its own sake. It's just reflection of my mind, basically. I'm very curious and I'm interested in in uh, many things, as you know. Um, and I don't like uh, kind of a sectoristic approach uh, in this thing. So I don't foresee, for instance, that there will even be thematic issues. I want to present each new issue as a little... Um, package of fireworks in a way uh, people shouldn't read it you know from from cover to cover they can read one thing uh, there and one other thing here and just you know use the book as um a source of, uh, you know, temporary entertainment or uh, enlightenment, I came up with this one with a new term. Maybe someone has come up with it before. I call it delightment, meaning that it should be fun and it should be uh, entertaining, but it should also have the potential of enlightening people regardless of what it's about. You know, in this, you know, we have uh, a massive piece about the beautiful Danish silent film called witchcraft through the ages. Yep. And there's, there's writing about magical anthropology and there's the complete story of how the satanic Bible came to be. Uh, and, um, Many, many other things. It's this really something for for everybody in there. And that's exactly how I like it. Uh, so basically, what I do is that I pull the strings in my normal network, and I usually get good stuff. But I also I also try to be active and keep track specifically of like younger academics who are not yet. Corrupted by the formality and the stiffness <laughs> of academics and see what they can come up with. And you should, it's a big world out there with many brilliant people, young mm-hmm. and old, from different kinds of groups and orders and traditions. And I want, uh, like I said, the Finnish Wolf to be like a an intellectual melting pot in a way. And uh, that's why it's been very interesting to revisit the older issues now that i'm preparing them for republication to see that there is that consistency there is that a consistent red thread uh, of open-mindedness and tolerance and and uh, yeah things that i like
0: yeah i've got a chance to to read quite a few of them um you have one uh you have a few in here but you have one about the fenris wolf as libidinal liberator can you elaborate on that a little bit yeah.
2: I've been thinking for a long time, you know, people say that, yo, who is the Finnish Wolf? What's it all about? And, you know, the the reason I chose it as a name way back in the late eighties was that I was very interested in, in, um, you know, my own roots and the Scandinavian uh, belief and those gods and stuff like that. And it's very, it's a, it's a rich mythology. There's no doubt about that. And it sort of um, has a lot of magic and strong stories and just great colorful, you know, uh, mythology and the Fenris Wolf specifically, the reason why I chose it at that time was like, you know, I was very enamored with the dark side in a way. And the Fenris Wolf is not, uh, like a good guy in this mythology because you have the Gods like Odin and and Thor and Frey and Freya, uh, what we would call like the benevolent or, or or good guys in a way. And then you have Loki, who is the trickster, and Loki is the father of the Fenris Wolf, and and some other uh, forces. Uh, so when you look at it closer, though, it, the reason why I say it's a rich mythology is that it fulfills all the. Uh, elements of a good healthy mythology meaning that nothing is ever as it seems so what is good what is bad well the gods they're not so good they're they're fucking devious and they're self-serving and they're basically act- acting as humans again uh, right. so they need these shadow figures to set things right or as in the case with Fenris wolf to to aid the end of the world, to, to lead things forward towards Ragnarök, as this you know, cataclysm is called. Uh, but the reason why that happens is that that's a regular thing that needs to happen so that everything can be born again. And there you have the, the, the essence of, um, again, what I call the healthy mythologies. It's like birth, life, death, rebirth, in a cycle forever. Uh, because if things become static, uh, inert, that becomes like uh, a death drive stuck in a groove. Uh, and I would argue that that's exactly what's happened to the monotheistic religions, is that there is nothing but a longing for the great cataclysm. The, the, but there is no sense of, of hope. There is no sense of, of uh, rebirth in a way. Uh, so the Feminist Wolf uh, in on one hand is a negative or dark character who sort of swallows the sun at this cataclysmic end of the world but that's exactly the thing that facilitates um for the rebirth and you know make new gods and a new new land and new earth etc so uh, it's a fascinating thing but then i also called this one because i'm fascinated with um Well, who isn't? I was going to say sexual matters. Who isn't isn't interested in that? So, from the point of view of a sexual mythology, it's very interesting because you have um, in the myth there is um, a lot of hanky-panky going on with the gods. Uh, Again, as in any healthy mythology. Um, And Loki specifically is not all negative, but he has shape-shifting qualities. And I would argue, some others would too, that Loki is basically Odin's shadow figure. So they're basically the same and they are experimenting and they deal with a lot of uh, uh, sexual magics and stuff like that. And the Fenris wolf is very much like the raging libido that's being restrained uh, by the gods who want to keep their particular Oscord community uh, in order. Uh, to keep it bourgeois in a way. Uh, But the Fenris wolf is like a wild, wild libidinal force. Um, So I I like to read that kind of writing, which we could call like speculative uh, mythological analysis. And I intend to write more about that kind of stuff too, because I think it gives, uh, it shows the mythology as such Uh, as something that is not written in stone, it's not encased in a box. It's something that is also being uh, developed. You know, this mythology is not something that existed way back when in primeval times and then no more, because actually right now, 2020, you and I are discussing it. And the Fenris Wolf is is a a journal and there are people actually practicing this old pagan religion. Uh, I don't, but I certainly don't oppose it. But I'm very interested in how the mythology still affects us. I think it can be so deeply rooted. Uh, For instance, I think that our... You know, genetic mass, our DNA is kind of like a recording device. So things that we experience in life, whether action, physical things or even thinking, it's all being, you know, uh, moved on in new procreation. That means that in my specific case, because I come from this region, um, there is like this old pagan stuff embedded in me. Uh, And that makes it very fascinating for me to sort of reconnect with it. That doesn't mean that I have to go out and, you know, sacrifice some fruits or stuff to to, to Odin. Uh, But there are people who are doing that, and that's fine. But I can connect in different ways. um, And I like to do that, for sure.
1: Yeah, I was curious if there is a big, is there a big resurgence in the Scandinavian countries of well, the old Norse religions?
2: Yeah, but it's not, it's not really a resurgence. I mean, there are certainly groups you call call resurgence, but the the pagan stuff is still all around us. It never went away, in a way. And the most beautiful example of that is in probably the midsummer celebration. Uh, in Sweden, which is a big, big thing. It's like as big as Christmas in a way, where people get together out in nature, um, their countryside places, and you have this, you create this uh, incredible phallus, which is like a cross with two... um, balls basically on on the uh what do you call it? the crossbar um so you're you're and these things are carried in procession uh clothed with flowers and then actually stuck into the ground and this is not like a religious sort of pagan thing it's what families do and they dance around this phallus that's down in the in the sit down in the earth and it's like a family fest and it's, it's very, very cool. So that's why I can say that, you know, it's, it never really went away. Then, of course, it's a Christian country in the sense that it's, you know, Protestant, but fairly secular. Um, but this thing with Sweden is very different even from Denmark. Because in Denmark, at the time of midsummer, midsummer celebration, they have a fire on which they burn a witch effigy. That would never happen in in Sweden. We celebrate the witches at Valpurgis, for instance. There are big bonfires, and the young girls dress up as witches. We don't burn them; we celebrate them. So, so in that sense, um, I'm sure there are groups that try to reenact, in a way, uh, old Scandinavian rituals and and uh, um, Uh, concrete also true things they are here for a fact absolutely but i think it's not such a big thing here because of the fact that it's so well grounded already
1: yeah it's pretty fascinating i mean the the um you're right about that that it's not really a resurgence because like when the christian church came in they kind of just took a lot of the 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 beliefs and 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 amalgamated it into like syncretized it
2: Absolutely, and that's how smart people do. Because if you come in with too much force, it would just be a backlash. The best thing is always to take over uh, uh, slowly in a way. Uh, but um, I mean, it's it's uh, it's fascinating. I, I think uh, again, I'm very feel very blessed to to live in this country and to have lived you know, previously uh, here also uh, in the sense that. There is a strong connection with nature here. Uh, I wouldn't say that all Swedes are like some kind of you know mystical people or anything. They're not. But there is a great respect for nature. And, of course, that's the fundament of all healthy religion. It's your own relationship to greater nature. Everything else is just proxy, basically. So in that sense, I feel that the Nordic uh, mythology is very vibrant uh, in, a, in the same way that uh, Hinduism is in a way uh, because of the fact that there are so many gods and they're all uh, representations of psychic aspects or emotional aspects of, of the individual human. Uh, it's easier to relate to uh, gods, both you know their good qualities and bad qualities, if you know that they're basically parts of you. If there's only one angry daddy, it doesn't, you know, uh, lead to a whole lot of good.
1: Do you think that we're in a sense kind of going back to some kind of polytheism?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, the the, the Swedish uh, religion or the Scandinavian also relate that's a polytheistic religion. Yeah, you know, there are many, many gods, all representing uh, different, uh, you know, qualities, and that's why those stories are so fun to read. Also, compare comparing it with the hin- Hindu gods, it's like these uh, weird,
1: fanciful adventure stories
2: filled with magic
1: and weird things. So, uh, I do want to ask you this: um, you know, like, th- does th- and I know that they have to. Scandinavian countries, they have their own kind of like equivalent of the fairy lore that like is in the British Isles. So You have those like strange, interesting little kind of creatures.
2: Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the, again, you know, uh, I think that comes from, it stems from Uh, psychedelics of course you know uh, people tripping on mushrooms and and uh, whatever they could find you know and then being in nature and then of course you see things and then you mythologize those things those beings and uh, if that's turned into structures then you could um, start communicating regularly with those spirits and have have them help you and the, the interesting thing is not whether it's true or not. It's true enough for those people. It was true enough for those people, and it probably still is for those people who are connected in those ways. Um, but the interesting thing is the fact that talk about primordial religion, it's again, it's, everything has to do with how we communicate with a greater nature, with the outer nature, the nature that is not specifically human, the nature that is not specifically me.
1: You know, Sweden as far as uh, COVID goes, they kind of did some interesting things. Um what has been the result of that? I and mean, what have you kind of like observed for yourself there?
2: Well, I think it's an interesting dichotomy. And I mean, I I get uh, amazed that, uh, you know, when when, uh, American media, for instance, write about Sweden as being some kind of exception. I don't think it was that exceptional, actually, what happened. The sad thing, I mean, this is all, you know, we can argue back this and that and this and that and different methods of dealing with it. But um, Sweden tried to. Uh, be a little bit more lenient uh, simply to allow for more healthy people to be, um, what do you call it, uh, infected, I guess, uh, meaning strong people so that there will be an overall um, stronger sense of immunity, uh, which works in the case of normal Influenzas that usually come to our part of the world once per year, but this this one was more devious in the sense that the reason why the statistics went up, but not only in Sweden but also in Italy, Spain, France, etc., it was because of the fact that the virus got in inside the homes, like the elderly homes. Uh, and that the death toll uh, skyrocketed because they had no uh, sense of, um, you know, resistance. They were simply too frail. And so that's the criticism here. Now we should have done more to save them specifically. uh, But in terms of uh, general statistics, I think Sweden is like number uh, 30 uh, on the list of, uh, you know, Deaths per capita, or something like that. Uh, so that's not really high ranking. So obviously we must have done something right in the great, in the greater picture. Then of course everybody has had a huge toll. But I think the latest number I saw is like in Sweden, seven thousand people have died. In Italy, like sixty thousand people have died. In the US, it's getting close to two hundred and fifty thousand. And then you can say that well, it has to do with per capita and stuff like that. It's just Everything is sad. That's the bottom line. And what yeah. Sweden did differently was that um, they had hopes to basically uh, have a larger percentage of the healthy, strong population uh, to be infected uh, simply because the fact that when that's been taken care of, they won't, uh, you know, the virus won't move so quickly to those who are not Uh, strong enough Uh, you could argue that it's good or bad we're still now going through this thing called the second wave so that goes through all of the countries even those who shut down immediately Mm -hmm. like Denmark they were much tougher than Sweden and say we're shutting down we'll have no none of this but they're on par with us in terms of deaths per capita so it's it's a very very sad thing, and, and you know you cannot probably analyze this until it's over and see w- whatever these people did was wrong, whatever these people did was right, you know. And how can you measure it? Is is it only quantifiable uh, by you know deaths per one thousand or one million people? Uh, sadness, I think, um, uh, is not quantifiable in that way. So I, I don't know what to say. I know that Sweden yeah. is sort of singled out, but when we we're here and we, it's like nothing. I know people who um, have had elderly r- relatives who have died. That's a real shame and sad. But they are unfortunately also, if you want to be lo- look at it realistically, they are in these homes to die basically. Uh, that's that's another like sad. Uh, almost cynical way thing to say, but that's the thing. And that I think is true for, you could look at it from an, a societal analysis also, is that who are the most susceptible to be uh, torn or damaged the most, but it's usually like poor people and people like immigrants who live many people together right. in the apartment and stuff like that. So it is like a class issue too. Uh, most we, Swedish families are kind of small, it's like I think two kids on average, and and um, most people here in Stockholm are, are uh, you know very well educated and and follow the news and stuff like that. But of course, there's a segment of the population also who have no choice but to go to work. For instance, uh, most people, uh, I mean, a lot of people in Sweden work from home now. That was the government saying you should work from home. That's the kind of a um, draconian measure but one that's proven to be very very good uh, because of the fact that the less people who are out there the better it is to contain and control the virus and also this thing with uh, wearing masks there are a lot more people wearing masks now than last spring in the spring for instance so people adapt and that's yeah. basically what I can say i have no idea what's going on i mean you you get good reports I'm sure in most media, but I've seen some horrendous things. It's like Sweden is singled out and I can't figure out why, why are we singled out (laughs) when each country has their own catastrophe going on?
1: Yeah. That's, that's the thing is that to really all these kind of measures and all these things that have been put into place, like I think that we're going to be in a position really when the smoke clears, it's like history is going to deal with that stuff. You know, like we're gonna deal. Like, like you know, m- mistakes are going to be made, uh, and you know, we're just gonna to have to assess how mistakes cannot be made next time. I mean, that's it. Just it just really comes simply down to that, really.
2: No, I absolutely, I
1: absolutely hope so.
2: But, but then again, you could argue that. Whoa, do people really learn from their mistakes? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. historically, that's not been the case. Well, here.
1: Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's the depressing part of history. Trust me, as a student of it, I can totally agree with that statement. Well, this is Carl. This has been awesome. It's been awesome to 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 have you uh, sit in with us tonight. And um, uh, where can people find the Fender Wolf and where can people find Devil's Footprint? Well, I think the easiest thing is that, you know,
2: basically wherever they're buying their books online, because I have had one thing change for me this year, for instance, my, my own mail order business has dwindled. and I'm pretty happy with that because I'm sort of fed up with going and packing. Packing packages and stuff, but you know, with with uh, uh, accessibility through the online stores, whether you, you, people are used to shopping at the Amazon or Book Depository or whatever they're called, they, they're all there. Fenris Wolf is there, all the issues, and the Devil's Footprint is there at Amazon and Book Depository, and basically where people normally buy their their books online. Because the thing is that what killed my not kill, but what may what was a big problem in my mail order business is that postage is so fucking expensive now. And why yeah. would someone in the U.S. buy a book from me when the cost of postage is as much, if not more, than the actual book? Right. It's insane. <laughs> right. So that's beyond me. I can't control it. So I'm adapting to the situation and i'm working you know selling books on amazon i'm completely fine with that and it makes for you know easy for people to find it and it's cheap for them to order the postage is cheap you know i don't want to be a salesperson for amazon <laughs> but it's worked pretty well so far so so uh basically they can find these books uh wherever they buy books online
1: very great very great, and people can find your website where
2: and uh, that's that's basically my my first and last name carlabrahamson.com
0: okay. all right
2: excellent thanks for coming on carl thank you very much for having me and and uh, good luck with the podcast and and let's just stay in touch
1: absolutely sir absolutely um, we'll have this up i think in about a couple this will be up in about a couple of weeks so i will tag i will tag you in it i'll I'll post it on uh, your facebook uh, group as well so yeah beautiful
2: and i'll i'll post it in, in uh, our network also and do let me know if you need anything i'll send you some some uh, other like relevant links it's so boring to listen to links but people can maybe read them and if you need any photographs whatever i'll just uh, let me know what you need okay
1: awesome thank you so much carl thank you for joining us take care man all right see you bye bye, bye. bye. Alright guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. That was a great episode with Carl Abrahamson. Really cool to have him on, talk about the Devil's Footprint and his publication, The Fenderous Wolf.
0: And I know uh, a couple of listeners are very happy that they got to hear Adam say wolf a lot.
1: Yes, they always are. I'm sure Heather, if she still listens to the show, she's more than happy to hear me say Woof. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so, how's everything going, Serfiel?
0: <laughs> it was pretty good. Um, despite my best um, protocols and um, only seeing one person and uh, doing takeout and all of that, grocery shopping with a mask on, I did contract coronavirus uh COVID nineteen. Uh, but I am recovering well. It's just uh you know, everyone out there you don't want to get this, you know, it's gonna knock you on your ass for a while. And the ongoing fatigue and waxing and waning, you know, it, it lasts um a long time. So you really don't want to deal with this. Be safe. Um wash your hands, wear a mask.
1: Yeah, it's not fun. We're recording this on December the eighth. So by the time this episode is out, um, we hopefully you will be long, long recovered. And uh, but like this started like what has it been a week now? Yeah, Since it's you started up feeling up. symptoms. Uh,
0: yeah, I think it's like exactly a week. So yeah, my mother was hospitalized. I did not interact with my mo- mother. Um, but uh, she also got it and uh, she was hospitalized she's okay, that's good I do know of other people um, who it's been even worse for and uh, I would just uh, suggest that it is real and especially older people um, it can very severely impact them, people with pre-existing conditions Uh, but um you know, it's it's definitely real. It's not like a regular um regular cold or flu I've had. It's a real pain in the ass.
1: Yeah. So everybody that's listening, um, I guess in the future, you know just pray Surfio gets well. And, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm gonna be alright. He he's he's a trooper though. He still he still did the show uh with COVID, so that's that just shows how dedicated he is to normal,
0: Of course we are not in the same place.
1: We're no, we are not in the same place. I am over a hundred miles away. So that's good. No can't get any cooties. So so I think on that note, guys, I think that's we're gonna just end this episode. But special thanks to Carl Abrahamson for being a part of this and uh check out his books and what he has available. And also, guys, you want to check out uh, our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We've got a lot of great stuff up there. Uh, We're trying to do once a week uh, weekly episodes. And eventually, I think pretty soon by the time this show gets out, we will be uh, announcing new tiers as well So that are going to be starting around January 1st. So be in... uh, Stay tuned for that. So usual stuff um the uh youtube channel conspiranormal podcast and uh leave a rate and review on itunes if you feel so inclined and i think that's it and to spare sir Fiel his voice anymore we'll just say signing off and we'll see you next time on conspiranormal
0: patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check
3: out our youtube channel conspiranormal podcast